We hunger for that day, O God, when we will stand in glory, knowing all your words have been vindicated and all our hopes fulfilled because all your promises are sure. And so, Father, sustain us by your word and by your power. We trust you because you've revealed yourself to us in Scripture and shown yourself to us in your Son and sustained us by your powerful, enabling grace. So, God, we look to your word once again to be fed and taught and built up. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated, and I invite you to open your Bible to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. We're on a journey through the book of Mark, and all journeys have spots along the way, as I was reminded in the last few weeks. I haven't been with you because we went back to New Mexico, my ancestral homeland, and Marilee's dad had a heart attack, and we went back to minister to him. He's recovering well. Thanks, those of you who prayed for us and for him, a dear man, uh, a mentor to me, a pastor his whole life, a sweet, sweet guy, um, a Vietnam vet, so a dangerous man too, and uh, it was, it was sweet to be with him. He said he, he faked the whole thing to get all his daughters to come home for Christmas. Uh, so I don't think he did. But uh, anyway, we're back. And uh, along the way, as the kids have gotten older, we stop. I don't know if it's less or more, but there are so many non-interesting things between Los Angeles and Albuquerque, New Mexico. And there's also some beautiful spots. And as we make our journey through the book of Mark, uh, there are only vistas that are compelling because Scripture is perfect. And this one in Mark chapter 12 is in the middle of three controversies. Remember, we're in Passion Week. This is the week that leads up to the death and resurrection of Jesus. He is yet to be arrested, but it's imminent And as he goes back and forth in the temple each day teaching, uh, different controversies and accusations are starting to fly as his opponents are trying to trap him. And that's what we've seen in Mark chapter 12. Jesus' authority has been questioned because he did something so outrageous, so unexpected, Even though he'd done it once before, he knocked things over in the temple and he drove out everybody, the money changers, the worshipers. And the main reason for that wasn't that there wasn't a good deal being offered on sheep. It wasn't the exploitation of the worshipers. It was that the temple was now missing the point. Jesus, the promised one, the Messiah was there. And instead of focusing on him... Uh, They were going about business as usual. And Jesus is demonstrating that nothing is the same and cannot be the same now that the Son of God has come and Messiah is here. And so that outrageous offense of driving people from the temple has only exacerbated the problems uh, that his enemies see. And so the Pharisees tried to trap him with a bit of a, a Roman riddle about a coin, and he turned them on their heads with his wisdom from God and his powerful intellect and asked them whose image is on that coin. And today, right after that moment, and it's presented in Mark chapter 12, Verse 18, as as almost with no time passing, it seems that the controversy with the Pharisees was immediately followed by a controversy with another group that we're meeting for the very first time in the book of Mark, and that is the Sadducees. So Mark 12, verse 18 to 27 is our text this morning. Let's read it together. Mark 18, Mark 12, verse 18. It says this, some Sadducees who say that there is no resurrection came to Jesus and began questioning him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. There were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died, leaving no children. 
The second one married her and died, leaving behind no children. And the third likewise. So all seven left no children. Last of all, the woman died also. In the resurrection, when they rise again, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. And Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are in error? That you do not understand the Scriptures or the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, you are greatly mistaken. This is the very word of the living God. Bad theology. You know there's such a thing as bad theology. If you go to Grace Community Church, we talk about bad theology all the time. You know that most TV preachers have bad theology. It's not a phrase that's extraordinary to you. I think being on college campus, you have encountered bad theology at CSUN. I've run into just 14 minutes away, 40,000 undergrads at CSUN. I've run into something called the Mother God Cult. You ever talk to the Mother God Cult? Yeah, you've seen them. There's some some nods of affirmation. Uh, You've run into other things, I'm sure, uh, that we would chalk up as bad theology, things like Mormonism or Jehovah Witnesses. Uh, they've maybe come and knocked on your door like they have mine, and they're dressed like I am, except with that absurd uh, short sleeve white shirt. Just shocking. Uh, but whatever it is, I think you're aware that there's such a thing as, as bad theology. There's also such a thing as differences of opinion in theology. And they're not necessarily a a bad thing. Uh, Good and godly people disagree about different issues in Scripture, different interpretations. We just heard a a sermon from a, a good and godly man who believes differently than we do about several things in the Bible, baptism and and church uh, polity. He's an Anglican, for goodness sakes. So, uh, But we recognize that he's obviously our brother in Christ. He knows the Lord. And, and there are some differences in theology. That's different than, than bad theology, a theology that's dangerous, a theology that could hurt you, that could damn you, that could destroy you. The way we differentiate in theological matters is through something uh, that some have called theological triage. You ever heard that word? You probably heard triage because half of you are biological majors and you know about triage from the hospital, right? Or maybe you were a warrior and you know it from the battlefield. The idea of triage is that there are some hurts that are worse than other hurts, right? So if a catastrophe strikes or in, the, in a battlefield, if there's a number of wounded soldiers, uh, the medics are trained to, to deal with them differently, right? So if somebody has a, a cut on their head but is conscious and breathing and alert, they don't need immediate medical attention as someone who has uh, their, 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 their arm blown off, for example. That person needs immediate medical attention. And so medical professionals or medics on a battlefield or those in a hospital dealing with uh, some sort of of mass uh, disaster would categorize the injured according to the severity of their injuries. It's called triage, and there's levels of of danger. Well, that same principle is certainly true theologically, and it's true in the Bible. The Apostle Paul 
in Corinthians. It talks about matters that are of first importance. And you don't have to read the Bible even very carefully to see that there are things in the Bible that are emphasized stronger than other things. Just take the book of Romans, a tour through the book of Romans, and you would see that in a letter like that, the importance and centrality of the message of the gospel is something that you cannot tinker with who Jesus is and what he's accomplished on the cross, who God is and, and his, his righteous requirements and, and the severity of sin. These are things that all Christians agree on. And so there is a kind of theological triage that we're aware of. Well, Jesus encounters in the passage today some very bad and very dangerous theology. Judaism is not bad theology. I mean, the religion of Jesus and his disciples is good theology, but as we've seen in Mark, it's starting to lose its way as it's refusing to realize its Messiah is here. And the Judaism of Jesus' day had been uh, kind of splintered into different groups that usually refused to work together. There was the Essenes who lived out in the wilderness, in the desert. Uh, it's where we found so many biblical manuscripts and the Dead Sea Scrolls. But they were separatists who had uh, left society kind of waiting for an eschatological sort of... Uh, disaster to come and and separated themselves and lived in caves in the desert. There was the Pharisees, and you know a lot about them because they're a a common group in the Bible, and they were the ones who really had control of the religious system. They were in charge, and they were fastidious. They were the ones who had separated themselves and and they had made their religion quite showy and they had built on the Bible so much tradition and so much uh, human thinking and so many extras. And and Jesus has confronted them repeatedly about their, their elevation of human tradition. And there's another group, the group that we encounter for the first time in this passage in Mark, called the Sadducees. Now, I grew up in a, in a large kind of Christian church that was maybe not theologically awesome, but it was a, it was a, a decent church. It taught the Bible, and as a little kid, you learned Bible songs. And one of the songs I remember just taught some of the truths I was trying to share with you. Uh, you don't want to be a Pharisee. Is that right? I don't want to be a Pharisee. Yeah, we, we'd sing it to each other. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to be a Pharisee. You know this song? Because a Pharisee's not fair, you see. Some of you don't know that song, but some of you do. <laughs> Three of us do. I, I, I'm kind of struggling with the song. You should have thought of this in advance. I worked on it with Marilee this week, but it's been a long week. I don't want to be... So there's something about a goat, right? I don't want to be a goat. Nope. Because a goat don't have no hope. Nope. I don't want to be a goat. I just want to be a sheep. So it's like, it was like a fun little kid's song. And it had a thing about the Pharisees. You don't want to be a Pharisee because they're not fair, you see. I don't know if that's like a great capturing of, of the New Testament background, but there's some truth to it. And the line about the Sadducees said, I don't want to be a Sadducee because the Sadducees are sad, you see. And I don't know that the Sadducees were sad. They should have been. And everything we know about the Sadducees doesn't come from the Sadducees. It comes from the opponents of the Sadducees. A Jewish historian named Josephus, who was a follower of the Pharisees, uh, wrote lots about the Sadducees, and he couldn't stand them. He, he said they were boorish and impolite and uh, greedy. I mean, he, he didn't like Sadducees. And so, so much of what we know about Sadducees comes from Josephus. It comes from those who criticize their view. And so much of what we know about the Sadducees comes from the Bible, the New Testament, and their encounters with Jesus. And I don't know if they were sad, but I do know that they were a Jewish religious and political party uh, in Israel in that first century. And according to Josephus, they had a few views that, that he articulated, uh, a few points of theology. 
different than the Pharisees or the Essenes. They rejected the concept of fate, and they accepted the idea of free will. They were very concerned about the problem of evil, and so they tried to solve it by getting God off the hook and denying God's sovereignty. According to Josephus, a second problem with the Sadducees is they said that the soul doesn't exist after death. And that seems to be the predominant concern of the New Testament when it talks about the Sadducees in four or five places in the New Testament, in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. They deny the resurrection. The the third issue that Josephus raises about this, this group of Jewish leaders is that they didn't believe in a reward or punishment after death. They were some sort of annihilationists. They believed that the soul ceased to exist after death and that the here and now was the only time that a person would worship uh, God. And then the other note, and I'm giving you this because I think it matters to understand this passage, the, the, the fourth difference with these guys is that they believed in the, the Torah only. The Torah is the first five books of the Old Testament, the, the books of Moses, the foundational books. And that was where they were experts. They had that dialed in. Anything else was kind of uh, up for conversation, but it wasn't considered mm, perfect. It wasn't considered authoritative in the same way. Now, that's very different than the Pharisees, right? Because they are piling all these traditions and interpretive ideas on top of the Scripture, which would eventually become the the Mishnah and have all of these extra human traditions added to it. So they were purists in the sense that they really just wanted to stick to the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, uh, Numbers. They wanted to have those five as kind of the main thing. The other thing we find from Josephus is they seem to not be very great in number, but they were really influential among the wealthiest class. So they maybe this had to do with their eschatology, since there's nothing that happens after death. You might as well hoard like crazy. And so uh, they had a following among the most elite in society. And it's this primary concern that we see in the Gospels that the Sadducees did not believe in the doctrine of resurrection. They didn't believe in in life after death. And they said that because they said it wasn't taught in the Pentateuch. It wasn't taught in the Torah. It wasn't taught in the first five books of the Old Testament. And so it, it, it certainly wasn't a doctrine for them. So to give you that bit of background helps you understand that the Pharisees and the Sadducees would have had significant theological differences, but they weren't completely separate because several of the high priests were Sadducees. It was an interpretive school within Judaism in its day. But they would fight, and they were fiercely opposed to some doctrines together. But here in Mark chapter 12, we find them in cahoots aligned with the Pharisees because they have a common enemy in Jesus. And the Sadducees had to be quite upset with Jesus. In fact, verse 18 says, the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to him with a question. And they know exactly who they're going to because Jesus has already said in Mark 8, Verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. In Mark chapter 9, also verse 31, they came to Capernaum and when he was in the house, he began to question them, saying, what were you discussing along the way. And in this section, he'll go on to show them that it's necessary that he suffers, that he dies, and that he rises again. In chapter 10, verse 34, he prophesies, Jesus prophesies, they will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. And so Jesus 
has said repeatedly that he will rise from the dead. His disciples don't fully understand all that this means, but the Sadducees are against the very concept of resurrection. So they come to him with a question. And it's a, an encounter that, like all the other encounters in Passion Week, are trying to show the deity of Jesus, the authority of Jesus. But it has, I think, a, a unique ability to help us with how we should respond to bad theology. When theology is rotten, when it's dangerous, when it's cultish, when it's deadly to the soul. And Jesus becomes a mentor to us in how he responds to this dangerous line of doctrine that the Sadducees have adopted. The Pharisees have been against it, but they're willing to participate because of their mutual animosity towards Jesus. But Jesus will have no part of it in his encounter with the Sadducees. And he shows us two principles that we ought to have when we deal with bad theology that will help us answer those who hold on to dangerous teachings and will help us guard ourselves from being sucked into some weird cult. Okay? That's what I think this text has for us. So that was a lot of Sadducee background. Hopefully you survived it. Let's get into what they're doing. They're doing what the Pharisees always do, which is they're trying to set a trap. Verse 19, teacher Moses, that's their guy, Moses. Moses and only Moses, Pentateuch, Torah. Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Okay, he's not wrong. Sadducees are not wrong on this point. This is something we've actually talked about in here a number of times, once in the book of Mark. I've taught from the book of Ruth before. I did a series in the book of Deuteronomy, which is where that is located. Deuteronomy 25 verse 5 is a little section on what's called Leverite marriage. Levir is a Latin word that means uh, brother. Uh, brother-in-law or something like that. It's, it's, uh, it's where we get that concept of leverite. And it is a teaching in the Old Testament that if a widow doesn't have kids, it's the responsibility of the brother to marry her. And there's reasons for that having to do with social order, uh, protection of inheritance, the guarding of the family line, care for this uh, woman who would be destitute and powerless in the society she was in. And you see it in the book of Ruth. It's kind of the whole backdrop of that story of her trying to find a husband. And you see it in Genesis 38 with Judah and Tamar in that that story, but just know that what they're presenting here is, in fact, a biblical teaching, that there was a responsibility that a brother had, that when his brother died and left a childless wife, that she was supposed to join his family, and he would have that he would be married to her, and their children would officially belong to his dead brother. Now, I know that you're really glad that's not a thing we do anymore for various reasons, because you just think about your uncles and stuff. So, but understand that you just need to suspend your modern prejudices for a moment and understand that we're talking about a very different world in the ancient Near East. We're talking about thousands and thousands of years ago. Uh, this is a, a time where a, a widow would be intensely vulnerable, and this was intended by God to protect her and to preserve the family line in Israel. So uh, that's, that's what it is, and they're not making stuff up. It's legit. Deuteronomy 25, verse 5. You could look it up if you wanted to. Now what they're going to do is make up an absolutely crazy story, okay? And this one is not in the Bible, but it is kind of in the Apocrypha, which is uh, extra biblical book. It's in Catholic Bibles. There's a book called Tobit. Uh, I read it a couple days ago just because I got sucked down a rabbit trail. And it has in it the weirdest story you've ever read. And, and if you've ever wondered about some extra canonical books, you know, the Gospel of Thomas and New Testament times or, or some of the Apocrypha that Catholic Bibles have in them, I would just recommend that you read it. And you will be so sure 
that it is not something that belongs in the Bible. I mean, it doesn't take much. The story that this may be referencing in the book of Tobit is the weirdest Stephen King novel you have ever read. This girl, poor thing, gets married to a brother, and she's demon-possessed. And on their wedding night, the demon strangles the husband and then does that seven more times. Spooky. So it's a, it's a strange, extra-biblical story. Maybe they're pulling off of that. I, I don't know. But anyway, they present it to Jesus. And in the minds of Jesus' opponents, this is a total gotcha. Like a total stumper, like a trap, so that Jesus is going to be so dizzied by this dilemma and forced to admit that every family picture in heaven will be awkward and weird because of widowhood and remarriage and and there's going to be fist fights up there because it's like, well, whose wife is she? That's my wife. She was my third wife. So they're thinking this, this whole thing because they don't believe there is an afterlife. They think the soul ceases to exist at death. And so this is the trap that they've built. Seven brothers, first one married and died without leaving any children. Second one, same story. Third one, same story. All seven marry this lady. All seven die. And then she dies too. And then in their sneering, diabolical, absurd story intended only to discredit the Lord and undermine and expose him, they say, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her. Dun, dun, dun. And they're like high-fiving each other and going like roasted. <laughs> yeah, good. It's exactly how we planned it. It's ex- yeah, yeah. That's a mic drop. That's what that was. They didn't have those back then, but they had an ancient equivalent. So Jesus is never flustered. Jesus is never surprised. Jesus is never trapped. Jesus is never blanking on what he should say. Jesus never walked away and said, oh, I should have said this, which I do all the time. Jesus says two things, two guiding principles to help us when we encounter bad theology. Jesus boldly says, is not the reason you are wrong. Wrong is how he starts. Wrong. And then he tells them the two principles, which are, you do not know the Scriptures, and you do not know the power of God. But first, consider that word wrong. Planao in Greek. It's a word that means in error. It's where the English word planet comes from. Planets seem to move kind of in wonky ways in the ancient skies as they tracked their course. And so, planos meant off course. It meant to wander off track. It meant to be led astray or to be in error. And it's a word that Jesus uses as he frames his whole answer to the Sadducees. He says in verse 24, is not the reason you are wrong... And then he says in verse 27, you are quite palu planao, you are really or badly or quite wrong in great error. And so I think it's important to say this to you in the current age. There is such a thing as bad theology. There is such a thing as being completely wrong. And Jesus doesn't say, well, good and godly men disagree on this very difficult matter of theological issue. Jesus doesn't say, well, you know, that's your truth, friend. It's just really important that we love each other. Isn't that what the Bible's really about? Just love each other, man. 
He, he doesn't say, you know, well, I'm not really sure because I have so much epistemological humility. And there's just some things you, don't, you can't really, really solve. And I want to hang on to that. Jesus doesn't sound like your university professors. Jesus just says flat out, isn't the reason you're wrong? And then caps it off with, you are greatly, badly, quite wrong. He just hands them a big, fat, wrong sandwich. Wrong on the top, wrong on the bottom. And in the middle of it, are these two principles. And the first one is, you do not know the Scriptures. And the second one is, you don't know the power of God. So let's look at how Jesus handles these theological opponents. And and I think we can learn from it. Because if we handle wrong theology this way, I think we'd be better off. First off, the reason they're wrong is because they do not know the Scriptures and then they do not know the power of God. He handles these in reverse order. uh, Garland thinks this is a chiasm, a a poem that's kind of X-shaped that has something similar here and here, and then the middle comes together like this. And so perhaps what he shows first in verse 25 is that they don't understand the power of God. They don't understand the power of God. Verse 25, when the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage, they will be like the angels in heaven. In saying that to his opponents, he immediately answers the main source of their error. He he counters it. He shuts it down. Because, verse 18, the Sadducees are those who say there is no resurrection. And Jesus could have shown them from lots of scriptures, Isaiah 26, 19, Ezekiel 37, Daniel chapter 12, Psalm 73, maybe my favorite, Job 19, verse 25 through 27. There are glimmers and glimpses of resurrection hope scattered throughout the Old Testament. And Jesus could have brought all of those to bear for the skeptics. But like the guy in Princess Bride who fights left-handed with his sword, he decides that he's just going to stick to Torah. And when he pulls a biblical example, it's going to be from the Pentateuch, from the books that they agree are authoritative. But he begins by countering the truth with the reality of the power of God, that Jesus says that it is within God's ability to sort out something that they think is unsortable in their human minds, that it is within the ability of God, the power of God, the might of God, to bring the dead to life. And this happens all over the Bible. It's a demonstration. The entire scriptures are a demonstration of the unstoppable power of a sovereign God. It begins with creation as he speaks everything into existence. And it begins with almost a a proto-resurrection as he takes inanimate things like like dirt and breathes onto them and makes that into Adam, the first man. And so creation attests to the power of God. And then all of redemptive history joins the parade and shows that God is powerful. And these are the stories that you were taught since you were a little kid. And if you had no other takeaways than when you heard about the parting of the Red Sea, or you heard about uh, the, the miracles of the prophets, or, or when you you heard the, that Enoch didn't die, or, or whatever Bible story, David and Goliath, or, or Samuel in the night, or whatever it was, every single one of those biblical accounts were reminders that God can do anything. He can even raise the dead. And so Jesus confronts their skepticism with this concept of the ability of God. And I wonder if we operate in that kind of faith. I wonder if we have that kind of faith that 
takes whatever sort of human expectation or human question or dilemma and first seeks to apply, I know God can handle this. That's a good way to answer. God is able. God's powerful. He can do it. Now, there's a reason Jesus doesn't just speak of the power of God, but of their need to know the Scriptures because you can't just speak of the power of God apart from the testimony of God in the Scriptures showing you that He's powerful and apart from the rest of the testimony of Scriptures showing us that the the issue of God's power is brought alongside the issue of God's will, right? So in other words, I can't just speak freely of God's power into any situation. Last night I went to my first gender reveal party. You know how I feel about them. Strongly opposed. Calvinist. Find out when the baby's born. I've, I've articulated this view in, my, in the Austin T. Duncan Confession of Faith. It's fine. If you don't hold to it, it's a tertiary, maybe secondary matter for Christians. So, but I went to my first one last night. And it was, it was, don't tell anybody I said this, it was awesome. It was an experience I'll never forget. It was my dear friend, PP3. There's a whole backstory. There's, a, there's an arc narrative to the thing. Oh, my goodness. I was, I, my eyes were sweating with emotions. It was a powerful moment. And I had, they had these like clips at the door. Como se dice clips? Clothespins in Spanish is clothespins. Um, clothespins at the door. You get a pink one if you think it's a girl. You get a blue one if you think it's a boy, right? And there was only pink ones left when I got there, but I was certain anyway that it was a girl just because I'm a contrarian. So I put it on my lapel, and I could have said, look, I believe in God's power that you are going to have a baby girl. And there's plenty of Christians on TV that would say weird stuff like that, claiming the power of God. And the issue isn't when we overreach on God's power, an issue of God's ability to do something. It's an issue of of God's will to do something. It's not that God is unable to do anything. It's that God only does according to His will. And so whatever the matter is, when you have a confidence in God's power, well, I know He's going to heal you because He's able. That isn't an expression of faith in God's power. That's dangerous presumption because you haven't lined it up along with the second reality that Jesus puts in front of these guys. Their rational thinking had led to bad biblical interpretation. And so, yes, they needed an increase in their faith to understand that what God will do in the age to come is far greater than they could ever comprehend it. That there won't be a a, a perfect continuity between this life and the life to come. That marriage will be different in heaven. And I'm not going to get into what that might look like. I have no idea except that we're going to be like the angels in that we are not given in marriage. But Marilee and I have set up a meeting place in heaven, so we're just going to be friends. I mean, come on. (laughs) So whatever all that means... It was the issue that God is able to accomplish far more than they think, but it will be perfectly aligned with what God has revealed about Himself and what is according to the counsel of God's will, okay? And so Jesus says, when the dead rise, they will neither marry or be given in marriage. They'll be like the angels in heaven, a testimony to the power of God and Verse 26, as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses? And so he brings that second reality that not only is it faith to believe that God can do whatever he wills, but God will operate according to his word and according to his promise. And so we're not just speculating in a hopeful way. We understand that we can counter bad theology with faith in God's ability and with the knowledge of 
the scriptures. These are the boundary lines. These are the guideposts. These are the lines that God has put before us to show us what we are to believe. And so Jesus wisely goes to a passage perfectly suited to answer their complaint and says, in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush. I love that he says it like that. It's just so blunt and plain and elementary. How God said to him, verse 26, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Jesus appeals to Scripture and analyzes it on a grammatical level. I mean, that's how seriously Jesus takes the Scripture. He looks at the words and the verbs and the phrases, and he takes it exactly. And he exposes the meaning and says, the verse says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And when God said that to Moses... Those three men had already been dead for a long time. But the implication in the grammar of this text in Exodus is this. They're not dead. They live on. And therefore, God is their God. It says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so God's power is shown to be on a higher order, a different plane, and that the truth of resurrection involves a massive transformation of the order of things that is different than the world we currently inhabit, but will be in a place here in a way that's beyond our comprehension. He can accomplish resurrection. And then the Bible is testifying to the reality and truthfulness of this promise when Jesus says, have you not read in your exclusive devotion to the Torah, Exodus 3.6, and he shows them all these truths in one package, teaching this truth, marriage is not intended to exist eternally, but you will be angel-like in the way that you relate to one another in the age to come. And this is perfectly clear because God is still the God of all the saints who've gone gone before because they still exist. I mean, it's a brilliant strategy. And he closes it off by saying he's not the God of the dead, but of the living. And so it's a reminder here if you're, if you're visiting with us and you're, you're, you don't know about Christianity maybe or you've been to church a couple times or whatever and maybe this whole thing is weird and you're not wrong about that. But I will tell you this, that there's a little, there's a little warning here for you. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. There's a reminder here if you're not a Christian that someday you'll be like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And don't be like the Sadducees and think that when you die, you just R.I.P. When you die, you know, you just fade away. You will be more alive in that moment of your death than you've ever been. It's sort of like when a baby is born. When a baby is born, they've just been chilling that whole time right? They don't know about you. They don't know about mom. They don't know about nothing. They're just, they're just in there. It sounds like goosh, 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 goosh in there. It's loud. They don't know anything. And next thing you know, they, they, they come into this world. First thing they see, their dad passes out. <laughs> Some guy in a mask. Hands it to mom and mama holds you. I mean, it's, it's miraculous. It's awesome. Unforgettable, powerful. I wonder if death is something like that. Something like you've lived your whole life without an awareness of God's presence and power potentially, and then one day your heart finally stops beating and you you open your eyes and there He is. And He's been there all along. And He's been the one who gave you life and the one who sustained you your whole life long. And, And I wonder if you're aware of that if you've worshipped Him accordingly. 
if you've responded to him as he's activated your conscience when you did something wrong, if you've worshiped in wonder when you saw something magnificent in his creation. Just a reminder, if you're here with us and and you're not a Christian, someday you'll answer to God because he is the God not of the dead, but of the living, and you will live forever either with him because of the forgiveness that comes from Jesus at the cross or apart from him because that's what our sins rightly deserve. But there's another thing here that kind of brings this all together. If bad theology can be answered by the power of God and the knowledge of the Scriptures... I think it's just, it wouldn't be very nice of me to not give you a little bit on this no marriage in heaven thing, because I kind of think it points towards the point of everything that Mark is doing in his gospel. Now, again, I don't know exactly how marriage and angelness works in the life to come. 1 Corinthians 15 is a passage you can study to learn more about the resurrection, but that's very basic. There's not a a ton of descriptions of of what resurrected life looks like in the Bible. So much of it is left to, to our hope. I mean, there's a certainty that it's going to be the case. Revelation 20, 21, the new heavens and the new earth come down and There's no tears and there's no death. And some of these certainties, we we have those, but descriptions of it, you know, are there there water slides of chocolate? Uh, You know, will will grandma meet you at the gate? Like, we we don't know all that stuff. People make up a lot of stuff. But we have something here that points us towards the reality of resurrection that matters most. And I think it gives us a lot of hope as Christians. It's this. Some of you very much want to be married. In fact, some of you have prayed against the rapture because of it. And some of you think, you know, I'd I'd love to go be with Jesus in heaven, but you know, I've been, I've been looking at bridal magazines my, my whole life. You've got it planned out. And this passage serves as a reminder that in the Gospel of Mark, there's always something on the horizon greater than just this contentious encounter the Sadducees have with Jesus. We're in Passion Week and we're moving towards the cross. And for Jesus to talk about marriage and the impermanency of marriage, the earthly span of marriage, is something that's thoroughly Christian. And I want you to understand why it's a beautiful truth and not something that goes, I'm sad. Because the dudes with the short white shirts and the elder tags, they lead with this all the time. They come to my, they've been on my porch before. Our porch, it's really your porch. And they've said, you know, Mr. Duncan, nice to meet you, because they're like 17, so they call me Mr. Duncan. Don't you want your family to be with you forever? Because that's what the LDS faith is all about. Family together forever. They don't get into the weird spirit, marriage, planet stuff, polygamy, etc. But they don't lead with that. But they, they try to lean into the be together forever with your family thing. In fact, in, in Mormon vows, I've toured a Mormon temple before. They made me put things on my shoes uh, so I wouldn't defile it with my Gentile feet. And I got a tour. In, in Mormon wedding ceremonies, they, they close the, the marriage, they do the marriage vows with this line, for time and all eternity. That's bad theology. That's why traditionally in Christian weddings, we say, until death do us part. Because of what Jesus teaches here. So what is 
How do I bring this all together? Well, it's this. Jesus points at marriage being something that's for this life. Obviously, a glorious gift of God for mankind. But marriage, like everything else in Mark's gospel, is intending to point towards a greater reality to come. Everything Mark has written has been building and building towards the cross. And everything in God's world, including the institution of marriage, a lifelong bond between a man and a woman that brings children into this world and and glory to God and its ingenuity is not an end to itself because nothing is an end to itself. Everything is pointing towards and reaching towards the glory of God. The consummation of a wedding in heaven between Christ and his people that God has arranged for the bride of the elect to be gathered into the arms of Jesus for all eternity. There will be no marriage in heaven because heaven is a marriage. It is an an ongoing, covenantal, joy-filled, intimate relationship between God and His people uh, purchased with the ultimate price of the the Son of God's blood on the cross and, and vindicated and proved by God raising His Son from the dead. And then in that day, God will raise up that bride and gather her to Himself. And so marriage itself, instead of being a stumper that these false teachers put in front of Jesus, is just one more indicator, one more bright light shining to show us to look to the cross and look to Jesus and look to the world to come. Because everything that God has done from the beginning to the fullness of time when all things are brought together and made new will be more glorious than you can ever imagine. God has the power to accomplish it. And the Scriptures promise us that it's true. Father, thank You for Your Word. And the reminder that You truly are the God of the living, not of the dead. Our minds can't comprehend the world to come, but we know it's better than we imagine because you are there. Our Christ is there. We'll be glorified and made to last forever in eternal affection for our Lord to throw our crowns at your feet, to be in a world without tears and death and suffering, but joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. God, stir our affections for that world to come. If there's any here who don't know you savingly, I pray that they would trust in Jesus, put their faith in him, and follow him as true disciples. Thank you for your scripture and for your power that testify your goodness to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.